We're continuing our sermon series in 2 Peter, and uh, remember we've been asking, what do we do while we wait? While we wait for the coronavirus to be gone, while we wait for, for lives to go back to normal, and while we wait for Jesus to come back. Um, and Peter said, he's he's waiting, he knows that his death is imminent, so he's He's waiting for for the end to come. And he says, because the time is short for him, for all of us, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. And let me remind you where we are in in the letter. So so in chapter 2, Peter has been addressing false teachers, false teaching, false prophets. And now he's addressing these scoffers who are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Right? They're saying Jesus is never going to come back again. And so he's, he's addressing that scoffing. They're making fun of the Christian belief and they're saying, look, Jesus is not coming back. He said he's coming back. He's not coming back. And so Tyler told us last week about sort of the first part of Peter's response to, to that question. And so here Peter picks up again, um, answering the accusation, Jesus is never coming back again. Where's the promise of his coming? So I'm going to read the passage for us, and as we as we read and unpack, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at God's slowness, patience, and fire. So slowness, patience, and, and fire, which is the day of the Lord. Okay, so let me read our passage. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and on the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay, so that's just three verses, but there's a lot there. So slowness, patience, and fire. So first... Peter addresses the accusation. Where is the promise of his coming? And verse 8, he says, Do not overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So let me summarize his point, and then we'll, we'll unpack it a little more. Peter is saying, We can only accuse God of not acting in accordance with his character or in accordance with his promises from our perspective. We can only say, God, you're doing something wrong from our perspective, not his. Okay, so um, that's the that's the main point. But what but what's going on? The these scoffers are saying Jesus said he'd return any day now, and it's been decades. Decades is not any day. Therefore, he's not coming back. Period. He's not coming back. God said he would come back. He's not coming back. He lied to you, or he's not keeping his promise, or whatever it is. That's the accusation. Now, I want us to I want us to unpack why this why is this a re, an accusation that that Peter even needs to address because there's there's plenty of accusations that Christians just don't even entertain like people went around saying Jesus is the Easter bunny or Jesus is a teapot. You know, we don't need a chapter of scripture to refute that. Um, but this is an accusation that we do need because it's the kind of accusation that that does resonate with Christians. And here's why. The accusation is, based on 
who God says he is, based on who God has revealed he is, on what God has revealed in his in, in his word, in the person of Jesus, his promises, his character, based on God's own declaration of who he is, he doesn't seem to be acting in accordance with that. Right? So you can have a, 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 an incorrect conception of God. Right? You can have the wrong theory of God, and then when you look at the world, it doesn't make sense. But this is not the problem. The problem is God said this, and it's not happening. And that's the challenge. That's what, and the scoffers are saying, therefore, it's not true. Now, for Christians, this accusation shows up in lots of ways, right? We say, God, you've said, you call yourself the God who heals us. We preached about this from Exodus a few months ago. The Lord who heals. You go around healing. Jesus, when you were on the earth, you healed thousands of people. And I'm praying for healing, and I'm not healed. Why, God? Or, God, you name yourself the God who provides, and I'm lacking big time now. Right? Or we say, God, you call us your friend. You say, we're not servants, we're friends. That's your words, God. But I don't feel your friendship. I feel far from you, God. These, this is our experience as Christians. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, you will, your experience will be in contradiction to what God has said. And so what do you do when that happens? And Peter is addressing just that. Now here, this is, a, this is just one example. God said Jesus would come back any day now, and it's been decades. Decades are not days. And so the scoffers say decades are not days, therefore... He's not keeping his promise. But Peter says, let me, let me rephrase as a, what Peter says as a question. He says, on what basis could you say that God is not keeping his promise? And so then he, he answers, you know, the, the implicit question that there, he says, look, uh, time. Ah, you're saying it. The, the amount of time is not what God said. You know that God created time, right? Like before God created time, there wasn't time. Our conception of time we inherited because God created it for us. And um, so God is not subject to time. He's not subject to, to his creation the way that we are. Um, with God, with the Lord, one day is it's like a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. So we can't say God is acting slowly or quickly according to us. On what basis would we say God has not fulfilled his promise yet on the basis of our conception of time, which, which God is not subject to. So Peter is saying, look, any time we say God said he would heal me and he hasn't healed me uh, now. Well, you know what? Let me tell you, God will heal you sometime between now and the resurrection. At the resurrection, you will be healed. So you might say, well, that's not the same as healing me now. Well, according to you, according to us, but not according to God's conception of time. God hasn't provided everything I need. He's going to provide a resurrected eternity. That's, that's guaranteed. So is he not providing according to us? We can only accuse God of not acting in accordance with his character and purposes and promise from our perspective. That's, that's, his, that's Peter's point. 
God seems slow, but only from our perspective. We don't have a basis to say, God, you're not doing what you said. Now, this is a this is an intellectual point, let's say. It's he's addressing the the scoffers and saying, scoffers, you can't actually make this point. But it doesn't change. There's a there is still a pastoral heart concern. Because we may say, okay, I don't have a basis for saying God's not keeping his promises, right? But that doesn't change the fact that from our perspective, decades are decades. And so if I'm looking at the world and, and experiencing injustice saying, God, when you come back, this will end and it's taking a long time and it hurts, where are you? Or I'm in pain because I haven't been healed. God, where are you? Or, you know, whatever it is that we're waiting for. And we say, God, you promised, where are you? Right? We can say, why so long? I mean, you, look, you go through the Psalms and the psalmist continually cries, how long, O Lord? So, you know, the first point is, is God's slowness is only according to, to us. But the second point is, is Peter does address that heart concern. Why does it seem like God's taking so long? What is he doing? And so he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay? Now, let me, again, give the overview and then unpack it. God's desire is our salvation. God's so-called slowness is for the sake of our salvation. Okay? So... There's a greater good that God is doing by not working according to what we think God should be doing. All right, that's the overview. Let me unpack this. Okay, so first, let me, let me, what is, what is Peter saying? Okay, um, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Now, I want to just be clear, like, what is he saying? The word wish in English is like, I sure hope it happens. Ah, and we wish upon a star. And, you know, let's be honest. When you wish upon a star, that's not something you expect is going to happen. Um, now, in Greek, there's two words for wish. Um, and the word, so there's there's one word, thalo, which, is, which focuses on the desire. It's like, it's wishfulness. So um, when somebody says, Lord, if you are willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. Right? So it's the desire behind an offer. Um, and a, 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 an offer like that's, that's, a, a, <laughs> that's sort of in accordance with the wishing, right? a, a thalo offer, right? that, that can be rejected. Right? Like, I wish that you would accept this gift and somebody could reject it. Um, but this word that's used is not, it's not that Greek word. It's, it's, it's the word... Uh, bulame, who cares, right? You don't care what it, right? Bulamai, um, it means to plan with full resolve and de determination, to resolutely plan. And it's a strong term, and it underlines the predetermined and determined attention driving the planning, right? So it says God has not resolutely planned or made an offer that can be rejected. He's made an offer that can't be rejected, that any should perish, right? His wish his plan is that all should reach repentance. And that picture there, reaching repentance, it means, so repentance, right, means change your mind. 
And that's important. It means change your mind about sin. It's bad. I don't want to do it anymore. Change your mind about salvation. I don't save myself. I can't earn my salvation. Jesus does it. Change your mind about what you live for. You live for God's kingdom, not your own, right? You change your mind. You turn to Jesus. And this reach repentance, it's it's the change of mind with an open heart. It's have he God plans and wishes that all would have an op- have space in their heart to change their mind. So it's amazing because it's both uh, determined and gentle. Um, now, I just want to clarify, that's just what it says. That's not my th- reading in theology. That's just what it says. And if you heard complications, um, there are definitely a lot of complications there. Like, how does this work out? And I don't have time today to talk about it. And I would love to talk about them with you and talk about them with other elders, talk about them with your friends and family. Uh, unfortunately, we just don't have time. So back to the, the pastoral argument, right? The pastoral argument is, why so long? And this is what Peter says. And let me, let me rephrase what this means in a, uh, sort of like a, in a story, okay? How many of you have come to faith, have, have turned, found space in your heart to change your mind to give your life to Jesus in your lifetime. All of us, right? That's that you that right. We all in our lifetime have become Christians if we're Christians, right? Um, okay, so imagine um, a year before you became a Christian, or a month before you became a Christian, or maybe even for some of us, right? It was very stark. A day before you became a Christian. Imagine that Jesus came back, and Jesus came back and brought judgment, condemned evil, washed away all deserving of judgment and condemnation, and where would that leave you, right? All of us, that if we had not turned to Jesus as our source of forgiveness, as our Savior, then we, at that moment, we were not saved. At that moment, we were not forgiven. So if Jesus had come back, we would be condemned. So all of us, we should be really glad that Jesus didn't come back before that point. Now, the the change is then some of us say, well, but now he can come back because now I'm good. Okay? But we all have friends and family, neighbors. We have loved ones who have not turned to Jesus. And, And maybe I would say yet. They haven't turned to Jesus. And, and, and I say yet because we don't know who will and who won't. We don't know. But if God comes back tomorrow, they haven't turned to Jesus yet. And, you know, God looks down and he sees his children running away from him and it grieves him. And he sees his people, his, his spiritual spouse rejecting him and committing adultery. And it grieves him. And Peter is telling us, God is patient towards us to give us time to reach repentance. God does not wish that any should perish. If you love your unsaved friends and family, then you also, with God, will patiently bear with suffering and evil and injustice to leave room for God's patience. I mean, that's that's what this means, right? We want Jesus to come back, right? Because we say, Jesus, 
There is sickness and death and evil and injustice and we want it to end. But you know what we can do, God? We can, we can bear with the suffering in the present moment because we know that your patience is for our salvation and your patience is for the salvation of those that you love and the salvation of those that we love. So anytime it feels like God is slow to keep his promises, slow to fulfill his promises, the question we always need to step back and ask is, what greater good is God doing? And what greater good can I be a part of by patiently bearing these things with God? Okay, so those are our first two points. God's slowness, well, only according to us, not according to him. God's patience, God's, God's desire is for our salvation. And so finally, more, <laughs> the biggest point, uh, fire, the day of the Lord. So remember, he's been addressing these scoffers, these false teachers, and they're saying that, you know, Jesus is never coming back, and, and he remind, and Peter reminds us of water, and he reminds us of fire, and he comes back to fire, and he says, but, okay, so God is patient, but the day of the Lord will, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Uh, John Piper summarizes this verse. He's saying, remember, there, he, Peter's addressing the false teachers, the false teachers who promise freedom, freedom in this world, but really they're enslaved um, to their passions and their desires. And so John Piper summarizes this as Peter saying, the world you false teachers love, the world you love is going to burn. Now that's, this is a, this is a complicated, this is a confusing verse, actually, um, because honestly, the question is, what what is going to burn? What exactly? Okay, God's going to bring judgment, but what exactly? Right? Tyler told us about um, um, purifying the world, um, but what exactly does that mean? Okay, um, does it mean that the beautiful trees and mountains that God has created, that He has declared good, that He's going to burn those and dissolve them? What what does He mean? Um, well, let me, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It actually does not mean that God is going to literally destroy everything and just replace it with something completely new. And let me, let me show you, I'm going to explain that two ways because it seems completely at odds with what we just read, right? Um, so let me first give you the example from, from Jesus's resurrected body. Okay. Um, we're told that Jesus's resurrected body he says, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of the resurrection. This is the first fruits. It points to what God is going to do when he restores all of creation, when he resurrects all of creation. And Jesus' resurrected body, it's not a new and completely different body, right? Like the, the fact that Jesus' earthly body is not there, that the, earth, that the tomb is empty, is significant. Jesus' resurrected body is his earthly body transformed. So it's not just that Jesus was resuscitated, same body, but now he's alive again. It's different. His, his resurrected body, it can do different things. 
There's things that Jesus can do post-resurrection that he, his earthly body couldn't do. And, and, you know, and people like couldn't quite recognize him always, but it's not that the earthly body was done away with. It was transformed, right? You remember a few weeks ago, Tyler told us about the, the metamorphosis of Jesus, right? The transfiguration. Uh, this Jesus says butterfly, right? Caterpillar becomes butterfly. It's not like you, you get rid of the caterpillar and the butterfly replaces the caterpillar. The caterpillar becomes the butterfly. So the way that the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation is the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. God is going to take this world and resurrect it and restore it, Okay. And you might say, that's that's all well and good, Greg, but I you just read the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And I sure did read that. And let me let me tell you, so I gotta I gotta geek out on the Greek again. Um, because this is a this is this is a confusing sentence because these words are confusing to translate. And let me, let me explain that. And I know anytime we talk about, oh, this is hard to translate, you know, we as readers get really uncomfortable. Well, how am I supposed to know? Well, you know, that's the, that's the job of the, the preacher to teach you. Um, the reason that I think that these are hard to translate is because modern Christians, um, we lack the spiritual cosmology, right? The spiritual worldview that ancient Israelites would have had, um, and so there's a there's a spiritual dimension to these words that we we miss. Okay, so let me let me be real clear. When Peter says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, that word for heavenly bodies is a very interesting word. It's the Greek word stoicheia, which you know maybe again you don't need to know the word, but let me and that that Greek word it has a range of meanings, and I think. In this spiritual cosmology, they're all related, and, and let me show you. So the the major re meaning of this word is spiritual powers behind the world, behind the elements. Okay, um, so stoicheia it's translated various ways. So here it's translated heavenly bodies, right? So that means like moon and stars and sun. Okay, um, but in in Hebrews five twelve, it's it means like basic principles. So the writer of Hebrews says, you need someone to teach you again the stoicheia of the oracles of God, to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Okay, so it means basic principles. It means moon and stars and sun, right? And you might say those are really different. Um, but it doesn't just mean basic elementary principles. It means elementary or elemental spirits. And we'll see this more clearly in Galatians and Colossians. Okay, so remember, Galatians, Paul is writing to the church. They're tempted to fall back into following the law as their source of justification. He says, no. And so here in Galatians 4, he says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the stoicheia of the world, which is translated, we were enslaved to the elementary principles. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless stoicheia the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more, right? So there's there's this elementary principle enslavement. Um, and in, in Colossians, it really brings out that there's a spiritual dimension, um, the way that it's translated. In Colossians 2, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the stoicheia of the world, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And he says, if with Christ you died to the stoicheia of the world, why, to the elemental spirits, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? In ancient Jewish worldview, there was a spiritual reality behind the world, and they didn't worship the sun and the stars. They didn't believe that the stars were literally angels, but they sort of stood in for these spiritual realities. So the elemental spirits, the elemental principles, these are... It's not the whole earth and literal stars and planets are, that are going to be burned and dissolved, but it's the powers and the principalities and their works that will be laid bared and exposed. And that word dissolved, that's also, you know, really, it means to let loose. It means to release something that was bound, right? So when Jesus says, anything you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, or anything you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, that's that same concept. Peter is saying the stoicheia, the powers, the principalities, the rulers and authorities, the spiritual powers animating the world, right, that we sort of associate with these heavenly bodies, they will be released and judged. This is a sign of judgment, not a statement about what will happen to dust and to dirt. Now, I know that this, for us, this is a little weird, okay? Because modern, you know, post-enlightenment Western Americans, we understand that the world has natural causes, right? How do you get COVID? A virus, right? And so we, we understand that there are natural causes to the world. Um, and so this is weird for us. Um, but that, just because it's weird for us, the, you know, the, the biblical worldview is that, yes, there are natural causes. God created the material natural world. And also, there's a spiritual reality behind it. Now, this, what's really important is that we understand how the stoicheia operate and what's going on with this judgment. Because Peter says... The works done on the earth, right? The works of the stoicheia will be exposed. Now, when we think about sin, of course, one thing that's going on is an individual, maybe knowingly or unknowingly, choosing or not choosing, does what is wrong. Maybe like uh, intentionally rejects God's law or is 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 worshiping an idol there's the individual component right um but that's not all that goes on according to the bible there's also a spiritual reality and so the stoicheia right these elemental spirits are also animating our sin or we are participating in this spiritual in the this spiritual reality when we sin and i might say that's that's crazy but you know like uh, in the Bible, there's there's times where entire nations are associated with a there's like a spiritual reality behind it. So at one point uh, in the Bible, they talk about the Prince of Persia, and the Prince of Persia was a man, a real person. But the Bible talks about the Prince of Persia as this this spiritual force that's behind the Prince of Persia. 
And Egypt is discussed in, in, as a spiritual force behind the nation of Egypt. Um, and Babylon, there's the real you know, nation of Babylon, um, real flesh and blood people. But Babylon also has this spiritual component, which is why you read through the apocalyptic literature, you read through Revelation, and, and it's Babylon... Right, the, the, the nation of Babylon has long been defeated, but Babylon is being judged. There's a spiritual reality animating these idolatrous nations. And so uh, the Stoiche are precisely why um, the Bible can talk about, or we, you know, maybe it doesn't use these words, but it's precisely why systemic evil or systemic sin is a real thing according to the Bible. Because there is a spiritual reality animating the world. It's not just that there are individuals sinning. There is a spiritual reality behind the scenes. There is a stoicheia, right? And so going back to right that John Piper, the world you love is going to burn. He's telling those false teachers, remember, they promise freedom, but they're enslaved. And we, everything we read from you know, Paul here, the stoicheia are enslaving you. They're drawing you captive. Peter is saying, the world you love, the stoicheia you serve, the stoicheia that have captivated you and enslaved you, they are going to burn. And remember, the whole this is all about the day of the Lord, right? And the day of the Lord is the day that God brings judgment against human rebellion, right? So he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then he tells us, there's this, this heavenly bodies being burned up. Now, the day of the Lord, this, this is a theme that you see throughout Scripture, right? God will confront human rebellion, right? You see it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rebel, and God confronts it. You see it at the Tower of Babel, right? Now we have a corporate human rebellion. We, as a, as a, as a community, are rebelling against God, and God scatters. And then Egypt, right? This idolatrous nation, and Egypt is defeated, and... God, and later, um, the Israelites talk about the day that Egypt was defeated. The day, right? That's the first time the day of the Lord is used. And that gets picked up again. The day against Egypt. The day against Babylon. Because Babylon now is a stand-in for all human evil. For all human rebellion. But then we get to the prophet Amos. And he says, the day of the Lord will come. But guess what? It's coming for you, Israel. He says, why are you looking for the day of the Lord? It's not going to be good. The day of the Lord is coming because you, Israel, have rebelled. You, Israel, have failed to love God. And this is the problem for all of us. We can say, yeah, God, bring the day of the Lord. Punish evil. But apart from Christ, we, when the day of the Lord comes, he's coming for us. And so Jesus comes, and what does he do? He says he's bringing the day of the Lord, but he doesn't directly confront Rome. He confronts Satan and the powers behind Rome, and he confronts sin and death, our real enemy, so that when the day of the Lord comes, it doesn't come for you. At the cross, Colossians tells us, right? He's, Paul is talking about the Stoicheia, but Paul says, at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Jesus came to defeat the powers and the principalities, the rulers and authorities, the spiritual powers behind the world, animating all the evil in the world. He said, that's the real enemy, and he went for them. And he went for them so that when he comes back to definitively wipe away evil, he doesn't have to wipe away you. So when you are tempted to ask, is God slow to save? Where is God? Why is it taking so long? On this side of the cross, we know that salvation and judgment are sure. When you want to know, is God keeping his promise? This is where you look. You look to the cross. To the cross. God came. He lived. He died. He rose again. He defeated the rulers and the authorities. He disarmed them at the cross. So if your question is, is he going to defeat evil and injustice? You look at the cross and you say, yes, he already has. And I know he will. If the question is, will Jesus return? You look at his coming. You say, yes, he already came. And he came to live and to die for us. And he was resurrected to new life. So yes, he will come again. And he will come again and he will be for me, not against me. Because when he came, he came to defeat evil and to buy my forgiveness. So friends, we can maintain hope and we can be patient because God has already done what we need him to do. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would give us patience. We pray that when we see what looks like slowness, that we would have right perspective and that we would, that we would cry out, how long, O Lord, that we desire to see your kingdom to come, but we would also ask, what greater good is God doing and what can we be part of? God, we confess that when you return, you will reveal the works that are done on this earth. And so we pray that we would live for your kingdom and that we would not be uh, captive and enslaved by the stoicheia, by the elementary spirits of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.